Hi everybody, this is uh, Ryan here and you're listening to Needed Conversations. I'm so excited today um, to have some really uh, amazing men of God with me as special guests. Victoria's taking a little break tonight. She's actually with the kids and she wanted us to have a man-to-man conversation. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, I'm sure you've heard by now um, everything that's going on in the world, even beyond COVID. Really, it feels like um, the conversations about COVID have completely halted at this intersection of of social justice, which is um, the video that everybody has seen of eight minutes, and I believe it's 46 seconds, of a police officer standing on the neck of George Floyd and him being killed. And um, now we see, of course, this this cop being convicted, uh, not convicted, but charged, along with the other three uh, cops involved in the incident. And this just really highlighted and brought to the surface uh, these bubbling issues that we deal with in our communities um, as it pertains to uh, police brutality, especially towards people of color, but just in general, um, still a thread of, of racism that permeates uh, through our society after all of these years. And I, 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 I watched that video uh, and grieved for for that man and and for his family. And I said, you know, this podcast that we started and, and called Needed Conversations wouldn't be living up to its name if I didn't discuss this, if I if I brushed over it and looked past it. And so I, I prayed and God put two men on my heart uh, to speak into this issue. Um, the first being uh, Pastor Jermaine Connolly out of Florence, South Carolina. And I've known him for a long time, over a decade now, really. Long time. Pastor Jermaine, thank you for coming on the podcast today. How you doing? Yes, sir. Doing great. Doing great and uh, excited uh, to be here. Thank you for, for the invitation and looking forward to the conversation. Yes, sir. Also, I've got another man of God who I've been knowing almost just as long. Um, he is a friend and he's an amazing leader and uh, worship pastor, and he's also a cop, um, which is very relevant to this conversation. This is Pastor Christian Oguayo Ruiz. Welcome, Christian, thank to the you, podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here and definitely a needed conversation, and I am very excited to be here as well. Well, um, I, I again, I want to just open up the floor and have a real dialogue. And really, I, I'm laying my heart out on the line here because there are some things that I struggle with as a as a white person um, as to how to approach these conversations. I don't want to offend, but I, I I do seek truth in it all. And just looking at social media right now, there's so there's so many emotions driving these conversations. And while I think we should be emotional, I think that our pursuit should always be truth, and our our, our pursuit should always be justice, as 
The Bible says in the book of Micah to seek justice and 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 uh, love mercy and walk humbly with our God. So I, I think that that's the goal of this podcast. But I want us to be open, and I'm I'm telling you guys right off the bat that I'm not, I'm I might may not be politically correct. I'm I may not be socially correct. I'm just gonna lay my heart out. And, and express my opinions. I hope you'll do the same. And I'm o- open for correction, as, as I hope you guys are too, or softened in your heart to just, you know, say, God, I, I want to learn. I want to know what what's happening that I'm overlooking, whether it be my white skin or just the fact that I don't have certain experiences in my life. And I want to champion justice, you know? So just right off the bat, I want to just give the floor to you, Jermaine. I want you to give me your thoughts about everything going on, um, and 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 where you where you are today after really almost two weeks now of, of this going on in the in the media and in the world. My my heart has been uh, very heavy, uh, very heavy. This the these well, I know the the latest. Was uh, Brother George Floyd, but then not too much longer before that uh, was uh, Brother Ahmad Arbery. That's right. And um, that one was the one that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And and that was the one that um, really got me emotional. Um, not that I didn't have a sense of emotion with, with all of with uh, the many other uh, cases and things that have happened, but for uh, Ahmaud Arbery, the fact that he was jogging, exercising, and just fit the profile of you look like someone that's done something in, in this area, and for him to be um, hunted down for lack of a better term, hunted down in, in that way and uh, shot. I'm, I'm a runner. Mm. So when I, when I got a hold to that one and I'm thinking, I jog for exercise all the time, you know, and never did it cross my mind that something like that could, could happen because you just happen to look like someone that that may have done something something wrong so that one was the one that made me sit down and actually for the first time in my life think heavily on the fact that I'm a black man Hmm. I never really had that thought before 30 years old I never never really had had that thought in such a sobering kind of way that I'm I'm a I'm a black man and there are people in situations that will automatically because of that fact that I did not choose myself but that was handed over to me will uh place me in a category of of uh less than Place me in a category of he likes this, this, and this. Uh, he should be good at this, should not be good at that. And not that all races don't don't have that uh, happening uh, to them, but just this, just my my perspective. 
you know, as a as an African American. Uh, co coincidentally enough, I had uh, earlier this year uh, began to do uh, some some history, learning of my family history, and learned uh, that I am a descendant of a slave owner. Mm. So learning that earlier this year and starting to put the pieces together uh, with that and all of that kind of coming together mm. uh, when I when I heard about uh, Ahmaud Arbery and then weeks later, here we are now with uh with George Floyd. It just just brought up just just heaviness uh, within within my heart, but made me, as, as you said uh, earlier, really want to seek out truth and move forward in that direction and move forward and being a part of the solution from from the standpoint of truth and being willing to engage uh in tough conversations uh even in the sense of not not necessarily always pushing that is uh, the black person that's being done wrong all the time, not really trying to necessarily trumpet that all the time, but wanting to trumpet truth and get to the the underlining to where we're working towards something that works for for everybody. Which, as as I have been uh, being a student and trying to listen into to the conversations, be it my fellow uh, black brothers and sisters. Uh, white brothers and sisters, Hispanic brothers and sisters, every everyone that's that's within within the conversation and within the dialogue. I, I am I am learning that for for the most part, most of the the level-headed leaders within these movements, Black Lives Matter and everything like that, because you you got your outliers and people that's just you know doing atrocious things, looting and all that stuff that's just not going to get us anywhere. But but most of the people who are level-headed within this are saying that at the, at the gist of it, we, we recognize that although all lives do matter in, in the umbrella of the all, for some reason, as we look at the stats and as we look at the different experiences, it, it is the black and the brown brother and sister who, who have the stats to prove and experientially just have have this this different angle uh put toward them uh with with different situations and if we all truly care about all lives then we have to make sure that we do give attention to the brother and sister in this case right now is it's the black brother and sister but if tomorrow it was the white brother and sister then we need to turn our attention in that direction and figure out why is it that you feel like you, your life doesn't doesn't matter, and um, just as as I think think on that, it's uh, it's an emotional mm -hmm. uh, roller coaster. It, it's it's definitely an emotional thing, emotional roller coaster. And for me too, um, I have family who have been for years all in toward the black man ain't being treated right and white man's out to get us. And I remember conversations like that uh, with grandparents overhearing them say things like that. 
but I, I understood, or at least I grew up, I understood because I know the era that my grandfather came from, that my grandmother came from, and, you know, just outright blatant racism and, and discrimination, you know, for, and, and it was okay uh, from a legal standpoint back then. So I understand. Um, I come from a family where my grandmother wouldn't watch certain movies, mm. certain movies uh, from the segregation civil rights era. She, she wanted nothing to do with it because it was too close to home for her. So, so coming from, from that to now um, being in this season of my life to where for the first time I'm actually kind of confronting that in, in a real sense, but still trying to maintain uh, a kingdom ethic with it is, it's just, it's been, it's been emotional, but, but I'm hopeful, uh, certainly hopeful. I know that uh, those of us who have been uh, empowered by the spirit of God and uh, people like yourself, leaders like you, make me hopeful that when we have these conversations that we, we will open the floor to be able to really dialogue and say some things that need to be said, uh, not wear our emotions on our sleeve, but then to walk away with some real action items that can be put into place to really start to, to turn the tide. So all of that to, to, to just yeah. give that. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing your heart. Um, and I feel it. And um, I'm glad you brought up Ahmaud Arbery because um, I too was disturbed by that one as well. And really this is, our culture It's really this pressure cooker moment because of COVID and black people being disproportionately affected by that virus um, on top of people being quarantined in their homes to their thoughts, contemplating their lives, just their reality as humans. So this moment bubbled up just, I think all the stars were aligned in a sense. And I said on a Sunday to um, our church, you know, that, uh, you know, these things have always happened. It's just, you know, we, we're now seeing them. And injustice is always happening. But when it's filmed and when you really can watch it, and especially this case with George Floyd, for that long period of time, it's unlike any video I think that we've seen in modern history of, of that kind of, uh, of hate and violence. You know what I mean? So I think that's why this particular issue, not that none of the other ones shouldn't receive equal spotlight, you know, and that's not to say George Floyd was a perfect man by any means, but I think the sheer humanity in us all, you know, cries out for, for justice in that particular case. I, I want to throw it for, uh, for a few minutes to you, Christian, having walked the shoes of a, a, a police officer. Um, I know you haven't been a police officer for, for too long. How many, how long have you been a police officer at this point? At this point in total five years in October. Okay. Well, time flies. So you've been, you've <laughs> been in it for a minute. So um, what, what are your thoughts about this situation and uh, how does your, um, your life as a police officer play into your, your view of this situation? Well, uh, first and foremost, when I first saw that video, I, I was completely heartbroken, completely heartbroken. Um, a lot of people, uh, whether they're white or police officers, a lot of people uh, that work in our profession, 
uh, tend to say, well, let's wait and see for the facts to come out. And maybe for, I, I, I can, in this sense, I can speak for officers in that sense, normally uh, our mindset is because we're police officers, we tend to always look for evidence, see for evidence, let's see what the outcome is, things of that nature, because we tend to understand uh, a little bit more th than the average person or citizen how the legal process works, how the court system works. Uh, things sometimes take a little bit longer. Sometimes there's evidence that nobody knows about, but the lawyers are sitting on it. Um, but when I saw what I saw that, that day and I saw the video, the officer was wrong. Th there was no questioning. There was no waiting for any evidence. Um, he went outside of his training. And, and I think that's a very, a very big thing to look at. Um, we are never trained to put our knee on the back of someone's neck. If we are to put our knee to control a suspect, um, as we're trying to execute the arrest, we are to put our knee between the back and the shoulder. And that is only for a limited amount of time because our training tells us that if you have that person in that position on their belly, uh, they can die from asphyxiation. And so they, so we're supposed to take control. We're supposed to put the handcuffs. And if they are in that position and I find my knee on the back of somebody, I'm supposed to then, if I have the handcuffs on, which is the purpose of, if, if, we're, if things happen, we're on the ground, I get the handcuffs on, I'm in control at this, at this moment. At that moment, especially if I have another three officers present, there should have been no reason why that officer and the other two officers, because it, even though this officer had his knee on this man's neck, there was another officer right next to him that had his knee on his back. So it wasn't just the neck, but it, it was two officers. I think one was holding the legs um, for control when control had already been established. And the fact that he went outside of his training remained and it, it, and you can just see in his pride, people are telling him, and it's obvious that the man is unconscious. Mm -hmm. So we ask police officers, so we're not supposed to have them on the ground for too long on their belly because we know that they could die from asphyxiation, positional asphyxiation. Okay. Your, your lungs, um, struggle just even with nobody on you because of the weight from the rest of the body when you're on your belly to to breathe uh, a lot of people say it's not healthy or good for you to breathe or to sleep uh, face down uh, they say the best position is actually to be on your on your side um, but then you add the weight of two grown men mm -hmm. that can lead and, ca and cause death is there ever a reason for um, once a, a person is restrained, 
is there ever a reason for that many cops to 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 be present and holding him down? Normally, if a suspect is resisting arrest, um, some officers have it of common practice because it puts us in a better position of control to better control the situation. Just take that person slowly to the ground, especially if you have two or three officers. Just have it's easier you're it's easier to assert control have the upper hand right put their hands behind their back and so in in that sense i can i can see if he was resisting to put him you know on the floor now if he was already in cuffs you have three officers there put him in your car in our training they're they're very thorough one on what you can or cannot do and two they teach you ways to get them in the <laughs> to get them in the car if they are combative. What should have been done if he was resisting arrest, if they did felt the need to take him down into the uh, onto the floor, then as soon as cuffs were put on, you have two other officers, three three other officers to help you. That man should have been placed in the back of the car. End of story. That man wouldn't have died. Now. For example, police officers are supposed to constantly reassess the situation. What's going on? I put him on the floor. Say in those few seconds that I put him on the floor, he starts complaining of pain and I've already got him in cuffs. I'm supposed to sit him up and then begin to ask questions. Okay, are you, are you hurt? Are you, you, know, are you, are you struggling to breathe? If he's complaining about something, I have to ask questions so that I can have the right information to then radio in our, uh, into dispatch so that we can get EMS out there to attend to his, to whatever uh, situation uh, health-wise he's facing in that moment. We're supposed to con- constantly reassess the situation. Okay, it shouldn't have been a question of when, uh, of how long, uh, do do I wait for EMS to then get my knee off of this man's uh, neck? It should have been, I got him on the floor, my knee's on his back, I got him in cuffs, let me sit him up. Hey, are you okay? Do you need EMS? From that point, if he would have said no, okay, fine. Well, let's get you in the car. Get him in the car, take him wherever we need to go. Hmm. And that should have been the end of story. Regardless of what he did, my supervisors would tell me, a traffic stop, a simple traffic stop, uh, a broken taillight, uh, not putting your signal should never lead to somebody getting shot. It, do, it, it doesn't make sense. If somebody's heated, you are told de-escalate. If, if you're a cop and you, have, and you struggle to speak to people and you struggle to de-escalate situations, you're going to have a very hard time as an officer. So, and, and I can give plenty of examples. I mean, I've had many situations where maybe somebody didn't like the officer that stopped them previously and they happened to be there with me. And I had a, a lady one time simply say, I mean, she almost fr- uh, flipped out. I don't want him here. I don't want him here. I don't want him here. I'm like, it's okay. I have that uh, other officer. Hey, I'm good. You can, you, you can stay, uh, some, some feedback. 
and I'll, I'll handle this, I'll handle this call. Gave me license registration, proof of insurance. Did what I needed to do in the car. Gave her, I don't remember if it was a warning or a ticket, but you know what? She was on her way. So uh, what is the, what is the vibe like among your police unit? and people who you go to work with every single day, when and when is something like this becomes mainstream? Uh, do you guys become fearful? Do you guys, are you in, I'll just leave it there. What are, what is, what is the thoughts and the feelings? So there's definitely conversation going on. Um, and one of the biggest conversations is, uh, is don't be that guy. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's, there's no reason stick to your training, do what you're supposed to do. We have conversations on how we could have deescalated, how things could have gone better. Um, we talked about different perspectives, maybe a different officer might have a different perspective on the situation. Um, but there's definitely conversation and we reiterate the training that we go through and there is fear. There is fear. And, and, and in no way do, you know, should our, I don't feel like our fear should take away from the fear of, for example, black lives that, that are experiencing this emotional pain or anything right. like that. But there is fear within the, in the department. Maybe some officers don't want to admit it, but there's a reason why the last few days I've been putting my patrol car in my garage. Right. I understand. And, and speaking of that, you know, that fear that black people experience that, you know, when I get pulled over by a cop for whatever reason, speeding ticket or whatever, I, I have a little, you know, uh, a twinge in my heart that's like, you know, I guess it's like a reverential thing that I think is healthy, but I never at any point have I felt like that, you know, I should fear that I might be killed tonight. You know what I mean? Uh, it it is a real fear that I've seen people have. Um, for example, I stopped the car, ran a stop sign. As soon as he pulled to the side, uh, it was a black man. He put both hands out of the car, just like this, and saying, "I do not have a gun. Please don't shoot me." Mm. Now on on the phone, he had two phones. One phone, he had his wife watching the whole thing and then he had the other phone recording the whole thing it's a real fear so when i stepped up to the car i said are you okay sir and he was like look i just want to go home please i'm i'm fearful for my life i don't i um i don't want I, I don't want you to feel like i'm disrespecting you i said no sir you want to go home i told him i want to go home if you can just give me license registration and we'll go through the whole, you know, what we need to do, I'll make sure that you're on your way as quickly as possible and you, you'll you be home at the end of the night and I'll be home at the end of the night. Jermaine, how does that make you feel to hear something like that? And is that how you feel? Honestly, I can't say that I have had the feeling of whenever I got pulled over that uh, I might not make it uh, out, out of this. Uh, going back to some of my earlier statements with with me like recently just really starting to to think about this uh from the perspective of of being uh a black man um 
it, it does somewhat uh, give give me pause, I guess, to, to think about a time whenever I am in the future, um, pulled over uh, by, by an officer or, or um, asked to, to do something for, for whatever reason uh, by an officer, just to, to think that um, I, I might not make it uh, out, out of this situation. Uh, honestly, I, I try not to let my mind uh, go go that route and right. and go there uh, for 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 me personally, but um, still at the same time maintain a um, real sense of empathy and uh, respect for guys that I know uh, who have gone through through something like that. I mean, I, I just read a, a Facebook post. Like it's it's kind of a um, social media movement kind of going on, I don't really know the word for it, but like there are uh, black brothers telling their story of encounters they have had with officers. And I read a few of them and one of them uh, was a uh, guy that I don't know well, but uh, he, he's a worship leader in South Carolina. And um, I read his story and I was heartbroken about how he was at a, at a stoplight and just looked over, you know, I look out your, uh, you pull up next to a car, it's almost kind of subconscious. You just look over in the next car, uh, look over at a person in another car, happen to be an officer. They kind of just lock the eyes, light turns green, he goes on. The officer comes and pulls him over, pull, pulls him, uh, makes him get out of the car. Uh, for some reason, ends up taking him in, and uh, he, he spends a few hours uh, in jail. And just the the thought the thought process of, of how all of that uh, would would go down to somebody whose uh, character I have not known from a personal level, but know well enough to know that I'm sure all of that was was not uh, needed within within that situation. So um, just to, to to answer the the question again, what what I'm having to do personally is is keep myself from uh, allowing my emotions to get too involved mm-hmm. with it. So so I have to uh, make sure that my emotions are still under under control. But I want to at the same time um, want to recognize the day I'm in mm-hmm. and not turn a blind eye to to the situation that that's at hand. Christian, I know that you, you can only judge based on um, your experience with the people that you work with. Um, is there a warranted fear um, that, that people of color should have when being pulled over um, in your estimation? Are, are there inherent systems of racial prejudice um, in the police system that that sh- that people should be afraid of J- just like you said everything that I will be saying will be from a, my experience as an officer and the experience in my department I can't speak for other agencies but to to answer your question from what I've seen and knowing the the laws and the policies that allow me to do what I do um, for me, in my eyes, 
Now, I've se- I've seen I've seen other videos. I've seen videos of other police officers and it's like man, what are you, what are you, what are you doing? But from my experience my agency I can honestly say that we've always tried to conduct ourselves in a respectable and professional manner that regardless of race, religion, sexual orientation, whatever it may be, in that moment, if you're breaking a law, that we go according to what the law is. Now, in some circumstances, we have, we, we have leeway where we can decide um, whether, you know what, I'm just gonna give you a ticket and, and not make it a big thing. Other times, I can arrest. It depends on the officer. Now, with that, I do want to say, you have to be consistent as an officer. If this is something you simply give a ticket and you have people go on their way, you have to be consistent with that every single time. And I was told that by my agency, by the academy that I went to. And this is the reason why. The reason why we have to be consistent and show no variation on who we decide to let go or not is we play the devil, the devil's advocate. If a defense attorney were to get the history of the people of the, that, that I've given tickets to or arrested, and they see, well, these people you let go, but my client, you didn't. What do you have against my client, right? So for example, if I always give a ticket for a traffic violation, such as running a stop sign, I have to be consistent with giving a ticket for running a stop sign. Now, if I only were to give a warning for running a stop sign, then I have to be consistent on just simply giving a warning. I cannot base my ticket or whether I arrest somebody with the attitude that they had towards me. It has to be to the letter of the law. If they, if they, if I see them run the stop sign, for example, I pull them over, I give them a ticket. It didn't matter if they cussed me out. I might not have liked it. And I cannot let what people are saying to me in that moment dictate what, what I do with the authority that I have. I do have a certain level of authority, but that level of authority, I only have it to the extent that the law gives it to me. I can't pull over people for no reason. That is illegal. That, that right. is wrong. I, I, I cannot do that as a police officer. I have to have probable cause to stop a vehicle. Now, for me to search somebody, I have to have reasonable suspicion. Reasonable suspicion that they, this person is just committed a crime or about to commit a crime or is in the act somehow of committing a crime. That's the only reason I can legally detain somebody and search somebody. Like, for example, you'll see the videos of people going, hey, you, come here. And like, am I being detained? What crime have I committed? I can't detain anybody if I don't have any reasonable suspicion that would allow me to believe that they just committed a crime, are committing a crime, or about to commit a crime. But you, obvi- you obviously see, you obviously see the faulty police work uh, in these videos, and I'm yes. sure it's disheartening. And you know, I try to stay as um, middle of the road um, politically as I can. Because I know it's politics is just a big, 
it's a it's a game and it's throwing garbage basically um and i make it a point really to sit and listen to um people who are far left leaning and people who are far right leaning people who are conservative i try to when i'm digesting this stuff to get as much information and this is what i can tell you is that the statistics about police brutality or um you know police who kill um unarmed uh people and by their races the statistics are, is very faulty and on both sides of the equation whether um you're you know believe that there's this systematic racism in the police department or whether or not you're spouting out these lines that a lot of conservative uh commentators are about all of these other statistics the fact is, is that the source that, that is generating these statistics is faulty. And from my understanding, there's not like a national database or really even a local database of these kind of incidents and what their races are. And um, is that true? Do you guys document and is that public um, con public consumption? Well, I personally don't know if that's documented, like if this is information that we give like to the FBI or to some department or agency. Uh, I don't know that. I do know that when we write a ticket, when we do a report, part of that report or part of that citation that I'm writing at that moment, it asks if it was a white male, black male, or Hispanic male. That, that does get checked off. From my, from my understanding, all of these statistics on both sides is sourced from organizations independent of, of like the police or the government in general. And they source these numbers from obituaries, media reporting, and uh, just local and in, in private investigations to draw up these numbers, which kind of makes it really skewed. Um, and... I, just in talking with people too and doing some research, the city of Minneapolis in general has a spotty history of bad policing. And with that same officer. With that same officer, for sure. So, I mean, it's, it's evident to me that in every profession across the board, there's going to be a percentage of people who are racist. And I think that people who are in the police academy or police officers security in any fashion there's going to be a percentage of them who have race, racial bias and honestly speaking all of us have prejudices in some ways and in myself i've had to confront that uh personally um over the last several years just looking at these scenarios and and i know that i pe people have prejudices towards me i, I know that but but not obviously to the level of racism or hatred like people of color experience. But I think we're all challenged to confront those levels of prejudices in our heart and um, really uh, address this from a poli policy perspective to know that the, the right leadership is in place. I think what I'm telling a lot of people 
Um, you know, when they're saying, especially white people, you know, how, how can we make a difference? And really it comes down to voting on a local level and determining who your mayor is, who your governor is, and whether or not uh, they're being asked these hard questions at open forums and town halls and really peeling back the layers of what their potential prejudices are, or maybe if they have a history of, of racism, because those are the people who appoint, you know, uh, p police commissioners or, you know, chief of polices and those kind of things. Um, and then even on a, uh, judicial perspective, you know, our district attorneys in the state who will try these crimes. Uh, and then from my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Christian, um, you know, police officers have a level of protection with the organization when situations like this occur. And I think we experienced this outrage and we all of us were saying, why weren't they arrested right away? Because obviously you said probable cause and that was probable if I've ever seen it in my life, you know. For, uh, going back to um, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, I saw the video with my wife and I said, babe, those men should have been arrested right then and there. Mm. Plain and simple. There was no looking around it. Now, he had some, I guess he, he's an ex-officer, and he knew the, the district attorneys there. It was like three that. layers of conflict of interest, yeah. Right, right. Um, I think I even saw a report where officers uh, were going to, but then were told not to. They should have been arrested. Well, guys, I know that this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this conversation. And we're going to carry this on over into another episode because there's still so much for us to discuss. I know that, Christian, you want to talk about, in particular, kind of the mental health um, issue within the police force and how that even um, plays into levels of aggression and statistics as to um, you know, why cops have a higher divorce rate or are more likely to abuse their wives. And really, we want to discuss where is the root of this racism? Because we know racism, it, you're not born with it. You're, you're, you're taught to be racist, really, or through culture. And um, so we're going to address this. And Jermaine, I want to jump back to you as well in the next episode to talk about, you know, racism from a biblical perspective and, and how we confront that. We know that this is a an issue that we've been dealing with since Genesis. And so um, I'm excited to continue this conversation. There's so much that we can do in a time like this. But number one, you need to vote and you need to register to prepare yourself to vote. And I know everybody's talking about Trump versus Biden. But let me just tell you, like I said earlier, uh, your local elections is really where you need to be putting the majority of your attention because that's what affects the culture where you're living. Let's take it city by city and, and move this um, far beyond a hashtag, you know? So uh, hit, hit the subscribe button. And we're going to continue this conversation next week as we do our best to unify us during this time. This is just a small part of me trying to help to bring justice and uh, reconciliation. God bless, and we'll see you next time. 
here on Needed Conversations. <laughs>